Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled Built for Business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel V Pro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel V Pro. Built for what IT heroes do. Built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The way I think about it is, imagine you learned the story of your favorite novel through completely accurate, unbiased, fair news headlines about it. So... Man hunts whale, boat sinks, right? (laughs) Sort of the major plot points laid out for you. Even if it was completely fair reporting on the story, you wouldn't get to the end and say, I understand what that book is about. The Mueller Report is more like a book. That's Susan Hennessy. She's the executive editor of Lawfare, a legal and national security blog that's taken off in the Trump era. She writes about some of the thorniest challenges we face today, strains on the rule of law, public accountability, and the integrity of our democratic institutions. We talk about the public's growing appetite for wonky topics, the latest controversy around the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh, and what to make of Representative Adam Schiff's urgent letter to the Director of National Intelligence about a whistleblower complaint. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, Stay Tuned listeners. We're taking the Stay Tuned podcast on the road this fall. On November 5th, we'll be in Minneapolis in the great state of Minnesota. Joining me is former marathoner, city councilman, civil rights attorney, son of professional ballet dancers, and now still in his 30s, mayor of the city, Jacob Fry. In addition to Minneapolis, I'll be in Atlanta with Sally Yates, in Denver with Shannon Watts, and in Detroit with Attorney General Dana Nessel. To get tickets and details of all these upcoming live shows, head to cafe.com slash tour. That's cafe.com slash tour. Here's a question by email from Valerie in Seattle, who writes, I gather that over the course of your career, you've been exposed to classified information that you've had to keep secret. We've recently seen the president have a tough time tweeting out classified photos and so on. So I'm curious, how hard is it to keep secrets, to keep track of what you're allowed to say and what you aren't allowed to say? How do you keep track of who has the same clearance level as you? Do you get to tell your spouse things that you can't tell anyone else? Are there tips or tricks for tracking all of this? Thanks, uh, Valerie, for your question. Look, if you've been entrusted with information that is so sensitive, only a limited number of human beings in the country are allowed to have it, and then there are even higher levels of classification where even within your own office or your own agency, only certain people are allowed to know certain sensitive compartmented information, 
then you learn how to keep your mouth shut. And you learn to have certain kinds of conversations only in a thing called a skiff, where other people are not around. Uh, and there are precautions taken so that there can be no outside surveillance or interception of those conversations. You make sure that when documents come to you from a safe, they're hand-delivered to you and then hand-delivered back to the safe. I had a safe in my office. I also had a phone next to my regular phone on which I could have certain kinds of sensitive conversations about classified information. Every once in a while, that phone would ring <laughs> out of the blue. Literally one time, it was a pizza delivery guy. It made me worry a little bit about the security of the phone, but I guess, I guess these things happen. Generally speaking, people who are in receipt of that kind of information never talk about it. And when asked, they steer clear of even giving any impression about what may or may not be true. I mean, in the ordinary course, if you're behaving properly and you have classified or otherwise sensitive information, nobody knows enough about it to even ask you a question about it. As to your, your spousal question, I can tell you, I was very, very careful about that. There was a period of time in the spring and early summer of 2010 when my office was putting together that notorious case against the 10 Russian spies, one of whom was Anna Chapman, who later got traded for spies. I was on vacation, and on more than one occasion during the beach vacation with my wife, I got called directly from Eric Holder to talk about that case. I didn't tell her what it was about. I didn't tell her what the case was about. I didn't tell her it existed. Uh, all of that was discovered by members of my family the same time it was discovered by members of the public, which is the appropriate way to go about things. It's actually not that hard, I don't think, if you're just keeping your mouth shut, keeping your head down, and understanding the sensitivity of the information that's being entrusted to you for good reason. This question comes in an email from Christine in Minnesota. Christine, you should come to the live show in Minneapolis on November 5th. She writes, Hi, Preet. If the DOJ decides to proceed with an indictment of Andrew McCabe, will McCabe be entitled to all discovery items, or might they be restricted by the DOJ? Same question regarding witness subpoenas, depositions, and unhampered testimony without the DOJ claiming a privilege, national security, or other confidentiality. Thanks for your question, Christine. Look, it's a criminal case if they choose to bring one, and you've heard me and, and me and Anne together talk about our views of the propriety of bringing such a case. But as with every other criminal defendant who is brought up on charges by a federal grand jury, the defendant, hypothetically Andy McCabe, would have all of his rights intact, should be able to view all discovery that relates to his case, which is included but not limited to anything that the government would plan to use in court against him, and all sorts of other material that would tend to impeach witnesses that the government might intend to call or otherwise bear on his liability, and of course, anything that is deemed exculpatory. So in the ordinary sensitive case, when you might be bringing a criminal charge involving someone at the highest levels of the law enforcement community, where classified information might be involved. I don't see how any of that is at play here if an indictment is filed and it flows along the lines of what the Inspector General talked about. As Ann and I discussed this past Monday on the Cafe Insider podcast, it's a pretty straightforward indictment on false statements if they choose to bring one, none of which, as I can recall, really deal with classified information. Some of it might be sensitive government information, but I don't see any reason why uh, Andrew McCabe should be precluded from having absolutely all the information that's required for him to be able to mount a proper, vigorous defense. There are circumstances in which, although I don't think they apply here, that you want to be careful when you're the government in providing information that might compromise sources and methods or otherwise impinge on national security. And there are various options for dealing with that. And again, cases that are not like this one, as I understand it. Among other things, the government can go to the court, as we say, ex parte, and ask that some information be permitted not to be disclosed in a way to make sure that it doesn't prejudice the defendant. There can be for your eyes only documents produced so that they don't come into the public domain. 
in very rare circumstances, there's information that could be provided to lawyers, but not necessarily to the client. That's really rare. But to take your question more broadly, there are all sorts of ways to make sure that a defendant in the criminal system gets a fair trial, a vigorous defense, and the government at the same time doesn't compromise national security. Sometimes it's the case, by the way, and this happened to us from time to time, the only way for there to be a fair trial would be to provide information that was so sensitive, we would sometimes have to make a decision with our law enforcement partners not to bring the criminal case. Again, this doesn't seem like that. It seems like a straightforward case, whether you like it or not, of false statements made about Andy McCabe's conversations with the press. But the larger question is still a good one. This question comes in a tweet from David Vasandani, who says, Apreet Bharar at Ann Milgram, can we get your thoughts on Representative Adam Schiff's DNI letter, hashtag AskPreet? Well, we're going to do one better, so you don't have to wait till next Monday when we do the Cafe Insider podcast. You'll hear in the interview that follows with Susan Hennessy, she and I have a pretty robust conversation about the letter you're referring to, in which Adam Schiff takes great umbrage, sounds actually as angry as I've heard him, trying to get information about what seems like a legitimate, bona fide whistleblower complaint within the intelligence community. What it all means, we'll talk about shortly. My guest this week is Susan Hennessy. She's the executive editor of Lawfare, a blog that tackles some of the most pressing legal and national security issues today. Hennessy also served in the Office of General Counsel at the National Security Agency, and she's now a Brookings Senior Fellow in National Security Law. We talk about Lawfare's new podcast called The Report, which tells the story of Mueller's investigation. We also got into whether the country should focus on impeaching President Trump or a certain Supreme Court justice, whether allies like Israel actually do spy on the United States, and the inner workings of the National Security Agency. That's coming up. Stay tuned. With HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, you'll get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. HelloFresh makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality, regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. Step-by-step recipes, pre-measured ingredients, HelloFresh gives you everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. Say goodbye to endless grocery store trips and stale takeout. HelloFresh offers something for everyone. Family recipes, calorie smart, vegetarian, even craft burgers. And it's so flexible. Easily change your delivery days, food preferences, and skip a week whenever you need. Add extra meals to your weekly order and add-ons like garlic bread and cookie dough. HelloFresh knows the devil is in the details. My ingredients arrived in a sturdy, well-insulated package so I could trust that they were fresh and ready to whip into a meal. Plus, you don't need to have anything on hand except for the staples, like a little salt and pepper. For people with packed schedules like me, it's nice to trust that a substantial meal for two can be delivered right to your door. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash StayTuned80 and enter code StayTuned80. That's like receiving eight meals free when you go to HelloFresh.com slash StayTuned80 and enter StayTuned80. Stay tuned is supported by Vistaprint. The most important time is now. Feel professional, polished, and prepared when it counts. Right now. Being ready for an opportunity is crucial. And having a business card from Vistaprint is the first step to making something happen. Vistaprint is here to help you own the now with free shipping on any business card in any quantity. You get to choose whatever style, finish, shape, or paper you like and get free shipping. Because you can pick the fonts, designs, and more, it means you can create something as unique and compelling as your business. You can feel good knowing that Vistaprint uses only carefully selected inks 
and responsibly sourced paper stocks. Your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed or your money back. Vistaprint wants you to be able to own the now in any situation. Our listeners will get free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. Just go to vistaprint.com and enter promo code PREET for free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. Limited time offer. Own the now at vistaprint.com, promo code PREET. You support our show when you support our sponsors. Susan Hennessy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot to congratulate you on. One, the continued success of Lawfare, the blog, and the various podcasts. And you have a new podcast called The Report, which is all about the work of the special counsel's office, Bob Mueller. And then you and Ben Wittes, my friend and former guest on the show, uh, have finished a book, which is coming out in a few months. So are you are you tired? I am. <laughs> um, I have already proclaimed myself as having finished my last book, although people tell me the further away we get from being done, the warmer my memories will become. <laughs> All false. Book writing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, th- I think that's terrific. I think I'm going to host your book launch in New York come January. You are, and we are very excited. I can't, I can't wait. So let's talk about Lawfare for a moment. This is a legal blog of sorts, started a few years ago, that I rely on. I know a lot of folks, both in and out of the legal field, rely on. You have a lot of great writers. You know, you get to the heart of the matter. There's good analysis. What, what, what was the point of starting Lawfare? The point of starting Lawfare was to speak to and become a resource for a community of national security legal practitioners. I would sort of define the original readership. This blog was originally founded by my colleague Benjamin Wittes and Jack Goldsmith at Harvard and Bobby Chesney, who's a law professor at UT Austin. You know, I'm a little bit you know, speaking for them here. But, you know, I think there was a little bit of a sense around 2010 when, when the blog first launched that the public conversation about national security was really being dominated by this civil liberties conversation or a human rights conversation, right? The way we were talking about things like Guantanamo Bay or the global war on terror. And that that was an important conversation, but one that didn't have a lot to do with the way people in the United States government made decisions on a day-to-day basis. Decisions are really, really important in in sort of in the national security field, um, or the way academics thought about sort of the, the specific questions of war powers and surveillance authorities and executive power and the relationship with Congress, that there was just this gap in the conversation. I think Lawfare originally sort of the genesis of it was to spark a conversation in that space. It ended up evolving into something pretty wonky and and sort of detailed and, and really in the weeds. And they're looking to understand these issues in sort of a less intermediated kind of way. And so We've had just a, a really explosive growth of, of readership and, and, you know, have thought a lot about what that means for the site, what that means for the future. But it's it's certainly been exciting. So you talked about explosive growth. And one of the things that you folks have put out is a new podcast called The Report. It's terrific and people should listen to it for the content it has and for, among other reasons, you guys will have a particular guest on upcoming episodes. Uh, me. <laughs> I did a nice interview with Quinton Jurassic last week about my favorite volume of the two-volume Mueller report. What was the thinking behind that? The report was available to everyone. You could order it on Amazon with your choice of introductory sections by different authors. You could get it bound. I know it's sort of long, 448 pages. 
What was the point of doing a podcast on that which is already public? Yeah, so the podcast is really a narrative adaptation of the Mueller report. It sounds a little bit like you're listening to a true crime podcast. There's narration, and there is Ben Wittes reads portions of the report, and then there's context and sort of explanatory material both by analysts like yourself and also some of the journalists that sort of first reported these stories as they were happening in real time. What we're really doing is sort of trying to break down the report in a way that's really accessible for people, but not just at the summary level, right? Not just for people who are, you know, too busy. To, not just at the Bill Barr summary level. <laughs> certainly not at the Bill Barr summary level. Like a little deeper than uh, you know, but, but not just, you know, people aren't just trying to understand this document with the big takeaways. They do want to engage with the particular substance. They want to get into the details, but it needs to be broken down and presented in a different way. We first launched uh, the first episode of Volume 1, and all of Volume 1 is now out, and Volume 2, which of course will feature yourself, will start this coming Friday. And, you know, we thought, are we crazy to be putting out a a podcast on the Mueller report starting in July? We're going to go all the way into October. You know, is everybody moved on? Are we sort of perseverating on this thing that, like, nobody really cares about anymore? Wait, what was that that word you just used? Perseverate. Okay. You win the big word of the day contest. There we go. Um, (laughs) That we were, you know, that that we were continuing to obsess over this thing that that everybody else had sort of moved on. And yet we saw this really astonishing response. I mean, we didn't do anything in terms of PR or rollout or anything like that and launched it number one on Apple Podcasts and and we're well over a million downloads at this point. And I, I think the numbers sort of speak to the idea that people still really want to understand what's in this document. They're still really struggling to do that, that the interest is there, they understand it's important, and that while there's been a lot of different attempts from, you know, people making plays or graphic novels or or sort of trying to condense it down into summary, there's still an appetite for just understanding what happened, understanding what happened in context and and not sort of in a hot takes, you know, the, the sort of political commentary, but just the story because it is so incredibly important. And traditional media is just inadequate to actually explain this in a way that sort of effectively conveys what's in it. What would you say, based on your expertise and helping to make this podcast the report, what's the biggest misconception that people have about the Mueller report and or what is the most confusing thing about it? So I think there's a million things that are confusing about this document. And every time I hear Mueller say the report speaks for itself, um, I sort of want to scream, like, what are you talking about? It doesn't. It It does not. I don't know why he perseverates on that point. (laughs) I think the biggest misconception is the idea that you can understand the Mueller report by having followed along with the headlines. The Mueller report is a cumulative document. And the way I think about it is imagine you learned the story of your favorite novel through completely accurate, unbiased, fair news headlines about it. So man hunts whale, boat sinks, right? (laughs) Sort of the major plot points laid out for you. Even if it was completely fair reporting on the story, you wouldn't get to the end and say, I understand what that book is about. And that really, the Mueller report is more like a book in the sense that 
it lays out something cumulative. It lays out a series of events that build on one another, that are related to one another. Volume two is related to volume one, and and you have to understand what that investigation was and how important it was to really understand how shocking it is that the president would be trying to impede or impair or obstruct it. And so I think that's sort of the the biggest misconception that, you know, people think, look, we've been hearing the headlines here, you know, for, for two years. The Mueller report came out, and the only question was, what is the new information, the marginal new information? And I think that's really the wrong way to understand it. It's the confirmation. It's the full record of what we can say happened and, and what we can't say about what we know at this point. And so I think that's the biggest thing, right. at least that the media has gotten wrong about sort of the significance. You made a couple of, I thought, good analogies just now. As if the Mueller report requires explication because it's a work of literature. You know, there's a lot of excavation that goes on later because not all of it is clear You don't get a sense of the characters. You don't get a sense of the themes. If you've only learned about the plot and some of the conclusions, is it a failing of the report itself, then, that this excavation and further explanation is necessary? Or is that just the nature of reports like this? I don't know that it's a failure of the report. I certainly think the report doesn't speak for itself or or isn't as clear as Robert Mueller might think. That said, it's all there. This is an astonishing document. It just is. And and it really is an almost maddeningly fair one, right? There are so many places in which Mueller extends the benefit of the doubt and, and really is careful in sort of saying what the evidence establishes, what it demonstrates, what you can conclude, what you can't say. I think Mueller really had this sense that His job was to put this document out into the world. Whatever we were going to make of it, you know, that was somebody else's job, that sort of his work was done. I think the problem is that Congress hasn't been able to engage with it. You know, that, that in some ways the response has fallen in sort of this weird no man's land of we were throughout the entire Mueller investigation, we heard Congress saying, let's wait for the Mueller report. Let's wait for the Mueller report. We'll see what he's concluded. Right. And he didn't, he didn't make final conclusions exactly. with respect to obstruction. So do you think expectations were too greatly raised? I, I think they could have anticipated this situation, right? Mueller lays out damning facts and then doesn't take the additional step of, of reaching the conclusions. And so Congress and the public sort of didn't know what to do with that. And I think that was foreseeable. And, and so sort of the expectations of Mueller is going to be the final determiner here. He, he's going right. to decide whether or not a crime was committed or not, whether yeah. or not this was okay. <laughs> you said um, Congress didn't know what to do with it. Isn't that a failing of Congress? If the document is how you view it, particularly volume two, and how I tend to view it, isn't it very clear what Congress should do and proceed in some form with, I don't know what they want to call it these days, an impeachment inquiry, impeachment proceedings, etc. Isn't, isn't that abundantly clear? Why, why so much confusion on the part of Congress in the face of, of what you describe, and I agree with you, is an astonishing document? So 
I think we are seeing a serious failure in Congress and, and sort of we're seeing the beginnings of it sort of wakening itself to, to this obligation. I think above all, Congress has failed to make the case to the American public and, and failed to understand. We hear Nancy Pelosi sort of talking about it as if, as if she's waiting to see what the public is going to tell her. When Congress's job is to lead here and to help us wade through these facts and, and not to just sort of point the fingers at everybody else who's getting things wrong. You know, myself and, and sort of analysts like me may have made a mistake in overly legalizing things, talking about the Russia investigation and the Mueller report and its findings both when the report came out and as we were learning about it in real time through this very legalistic lens of were the statutory elements met and here's the elements of obstruction of justice and can we check that box and <laughs> could we prosecute him in a court of law? Because that was something concrete to point to, to understand this completely unprecedented, norm-shattering right. thing we were seeing and we were seeing the president do. And the problem is, of course, that's not really the task for Congress. And, and the question isn't really whether or not every element of obstruction of justice is met so the, the president can be prosecuted and put in jail. Right. It's whether or not this is acceptable, whether or not the constitutional remedy, which is, of course, impeachment, whether or not that is an appropriate response by sort of seeking refuge in the statutory language, which I think for lawyers feels you know, comforting and, and fair and it gives you something you can parse and analyze, that also helped create an expectation that the only way that this could be resolved was a proclamation from the Department of Justice was a crime right. committed, if so, that's bad, right. or wasn't one committed, and if so, it's all fine. And of course, that's not the reality. And anything short of that, Trump and his folks say is total exoneration. But I wonder again, I feel like this is a little bit my asking who to blame for everything. So apologies to people. But on this question of, of how the standard got set, so long as it falls short of a readily provable crime then it's all hunky-dory. I, I wonder on whose shoulders that blame lies. Because I'll tell you, you know, along the way, year and a half ago, when we started to hear about things like the Trump Tower meeting and the firing of Jim Comey and all sorts of things that it was too early to say are the elements of obstruction made out or some other crime, you know, finance, campaign finance crime. Separate and apart from any of that, certain conduct that was irrefutable, that the public was becoming aware of, is easily defined as horrifying, terrible, and an abuse of power. And my own followers on social media, Twitter and elsewhere, would respond by being kind of annoyed with me and saying, you know, it's too early to say, of course it's a crime. Like, why can't it be a crime? Like, why are you ruining my day? As if I was suggesting there wouldn't at the end of the day be an indictment, which of course, you know, I think people like you and I were saying because of the Office of Legal Counsel memo. So whose fault is it that we got into a, a place where it's helpful both to the president who's engaged in what I think are tremendous abuses of power, where anything short of a scandalous and readily provable indictment, criminal indictment, means it's okay. So I don't know that it's anybody's fault or, or it's everybody's fault, I suppose. But I think it is the boiled frog phenomenon. When you take these pieces on their own— the president was negotiating a Trump Tower Moscow deal. Well, that doesn't look great, but I don't know. It's not against the law. 
and then he lied about it. Well, that's not great, but it's not a crime to lie to the American people. And well, then he told Michael Cohen or maybe didn't expressly do so. And right, all of these pieces are coming out little by little. And so you're analyzing all of them on their own terms. And so you can lose the significance, you know, not to put everything back to sort of our, our own project here, but this is one of the reasons why I think this podcast and taking the time to tell this story in a methodical way now, even after the news cycle has moved on, is really important. And I would encourage people, even people who read the report and really were informed consumers about this, to go back and listen to these stories being told one after the other and remembering the timeline, allowing the story to unfold. One, I think it's just astonishing how much you forget. And, and I say that of people like me. I, I, I've read this document many times and, and sort of my professional life was focused on it, you know, for the better part of the past 18 months. There are still things that I forget as like, oh, God, I, that happened. That's right. Or, or, wow, those two things happened on the same day. You know, I, I didn't realize that. I do think that there now is a little bit of an obligation, right? So how did we get into this mess? I don't know, but we're here. We are seeing, I think, a failure of leadership in, in Congress or certainly insufficient leadership in Congress. You know, the American people are going to have to get out of this themselves. And the way out is not to sort of pick our favorite pundits and just repeat the headlines, but instead to go back to the primary source document and say, okay, what happened and and why and and what is the nuance and, and what is the places in which you do have to be fair to the president? He is the head of the Department of Justice, and that is kind of complicated. And the reason why I think we have this obligation to do our own homework on it, and, and I hope we've made it easier through this podcast, is not just because, of course, that impacts whether or not we're going to have an impeachment uh, inquiry or ultimately impeach the president, which is important and may be appropriate, but also because absent that, the decision here is going to be made by the American people in November 2020. We really need to think about the office of the presidency, the powers of the presidency, what Donald Trump is doing with them. And the Mueller report offers a snapshot of that, but by no means the full picture, and decide, do we want to ratify that? Because if we look historically, and I'm sort of getting into Ben and my book at this point, the office of the presidency has evolved a lot over time. It's changed. It is elastic. Some presidents are just aberrations, right? Andrew Johnson does things and nobody else ever tries to do them again. And that's because he doesn't win re-election. But whenever a president breaches norms and then is re-elected or is not impeached, it's viewed as allowable, then the office itself changes. And so we really are, I think, at a precipice. And this document and going back to the Mueller report and starting from the beginning and getting rid of those assumptions about what you think you know, I, I do think is important and incumbent on citizens. You know, here we are. We're recording this middle of September. The election is less than 14 months away. It seems like Nadler's committee, the Judiciary Committee, gets stymied on a regular basis. They're in litigation with respect to some documents. There's an argument as we speak about whether or not Corey Lewandowski uh, should be able to answer certain questions and not answer other questions. 
What is this house strategy, if there is one, and what should it be? I don't know that anyone could tell you what the house strategy is. It's certainly difficult to discern from the outside one portion of the House or the Democrats in the House want to impeach the president and and want to engage in in a serious impeachment inquiry that involves hearings of fact witnesses and, and both for the conduct described in the Mueller report and also for ethics violations and, and all kinds of other crazy things that we see, I think, on a near daily basis. Um, there are other Democrats in the House that don't want to do that, presumably because they believe that there's political costs to that. And, and you know, the evidence for whether or not that's true or not, I, I think, is, is pretty complicated. And so you have one group that's dragging the other group kind of kicking and screaming. And so we're seeing this sort of weird game being played where they don't want to use the word and they're, they're sort of tiptoeing up to the line. And, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi is saying things that to me are sort of absurd, like he's self-impeaching, which (laughs) what does that mean? I don't know what that means. And and this sort of game playing. And and I think that this reticence actually is undermining the basic premise, which is that the Constitution tells Congress and they tell the House specifically that they have this obligation to determine when impeachment is appropriate. When you have members both saying this is impeachable and it's self-impeaching and it's egregious and and people should be talking about the 25th Amendment and and this is just the worst thing in the world, oh, but I don't know that I want to go down the impeachment inquiry road, it really undercuts the message. And so it's not a failure of strategy. It's a failure of political courage and saying – We are examining for ourselves, each member, what the Constitution asks us. And and we swore an oath and we represent our constituents and and we have an obligation. And I I think we are seeing a a real failure at the leadership level to to come out and say, you know, maybe it's good politically, maybe it's bad politically. Uh, You know, it's the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, when it's not clear whether or not it's it's going to help you win votes or, or hurt you in winning votes, you, you might as well just do the right thing since nobody actually knows what's going to happen. So this word impeachment has been thrown around in a different context over the last few days. And I saw you on, on social media comment on it with respect to Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, about whom there have been some new allegations in a New York Times article, which has its own controversy about it. Uh, previously, I guess, unknown or unreported sexual misconduct allegation from his freshman year at Yale, multiple presidential candidates on the Democratic side are calling for the impeachment of Brett Kavanaugh. Does that call for impeachment based on what is available so far? Does that undermine the first thing we're talking about, impeachment of the president of the United States, or or dilute that term? When we're talking about the president, we're talking about impeachment without removal. Impeachment plays a really important sort of normative constraint and function because, of course, all presidents who have been impeached, none have actually been removed. Because we have electoral mechanisms, impeachment without removal is actually its own thing when we're talking about the president of the United States. When we're talking about a Supreme Court justice, impeachment without removal is nothing. It's just a failure. So I think we have to examine that question really differently. Is there any reasonable probability that this person will be removed from the court? I I think in this case, that's clearly not the case. And I actually don't know that there is enough evidence for impeachment, which is, of course, very serious at this point. That said, 
This new report is incredibly disturbing, not because of this new allegation, which is an allegation of of somebody who said that they witnessed something. It turns out that the victim or or alleged victim herself, she says she doesn't remember this incident. So sort of put aside this question of is there a new allegation? The significant thing in this reporting is, one, that an allegation in addition to uh, Christine Blasey Ford's allegation, Debbie Ramirez, one of Kavanaugh's classmates, you know, her allegation of a misconduct or, or, or assault that occurred actually had a number of corroborating witnesses that she told other people about it at the time and that in the investigation that occurred after Blasey Ford's allegations came out, she provided the FBI with a list of names. The FBI appears not to have actually contacted any of those people. So I think the new information is essentially the degree of credibility, not just of the Blasey Ford allegation, but of the Ramirez allegation as well. Now, looking at all of that, I think that any reasonable person that watched Brett Kavanaugh's testimony and has looked at the record would conclude that Christine Blasey Ford is telling the truth and Debbie Ramirez is telling the truth and that Brett Kavanaugh is lying and that he lied while under oath. Somebody who has done that is not fit to be on the court. It tears at the notion of justice to have somebody in that position who has so flagrantly not upheld those obligations. That said, the sort of standards of legal perjury are incredibly high. The idea that you could prove whenever Brett Kavanaugh said he, you know, he didn't drink or, you know, he wasn't this partying person. Or when you said the devil's triangle was a drinking game. Exactly. All these sort of little things, how you could possibly, and not talking about proving it on a court law, but even establish that he knew and you have evidence to sort of prove it, that's just separate. And I can't imagine, you know, just like I don't think any reasonable person could look at the record and say, Brett Kavanaugh is telling the truth and all of these people are just lying about them because they're so mean or they're Democrats or whatever it is. I also don't think a reasonable person could look at the record and say, there is a case for impeachment right now. And so I just think it would end up becoming just a huge distraction. I found the tweet you sent. You know, tweets are always a funny thing because you have limited characters. And obviously, there's a lot of nuance to what you said. But I think it's just worth sharing what you wrote. It's, it's kind of a jarring thing, which is maybe a commentary on where we stand in the country at the moment. You write, Kavanaugh is a disgrace to the institution of justice and shame on every one of his craven apologists, but attempting to actually impeach him is pointless. Shockingly, there are currently more pressing matters than whether a Supreme Court justice committed sexual assault and perjury. That might come as a surprise to some people, no? I mean, it's a shocking statement, right? It's shocking to think there could be something more important than that. In any other presidential administration, that would be the kind of thing that we would expect sustained congressional attention. We might even expect sustained congressional attention before the individual was confirmed to a lifetime seat on the court. But but look, there are bigger fish to fry right now, and that's the president of the United States and how we should think about impeachment and the future of the presidency and congressional oversight in that context. And and I do think that simultaneously attempting a long-shot impeachment on far more complex facts in the Kavanaugh context 
would really undermine the important work of focusing on the president, which Congress is, is already struggling to do. And, and, and look, it, it pains me to say that. I think, I think it's a hideous reality. Um, but I do think you have to kind of accept the world as it is and, and, and be reasonable in terms of how you're going to think about allocation of congressional focus when it's just limited. How do you think history will view the work of the special counsel, Robert Mueller? Will it depend on what Congress does or does it stand on its own? And do you think history will look favorably on it or will it remain controversial? <sighs> heavy sigh. <laughs> it is a heavy sigh. I don't know. It's... That's a reasonable answer. That, I wish people said right. that more I, I often. I don't want to sort of criticize Mueller. I'm, I'm not sort of in the camp of, you know, Robert Mueller failed to discharge his duty. I think... Robert Mueller told us from the outset what he viewed his job as, his duty and obligation as. That said, I think there are a few places in which Robert Mueller made some choices that are really, really hard to justify, even by his own terms, and that really shaped the way we understand it. So let's take volume one. Um, Mueller says that the evidence didn't establish. He says there's no such thing as collusion. That's not a, a legal term. We're going to talk about conspiracy, and here's the elements of conspiracy, and we don't think a conspiracy was met. Okay, on those terms, looking at Mueller's sort of the case he lays out, whether you agree with it or not, fine. He plays by his own rules. But then Mueller says something else. He says, our mandate also included this word coordination. Now, coordination also isn't a legal term. But we're going to define it as requiring an agreement. He's now taking the word coordination and saying it's not just two parties that are watching one another and taking responsive action, but you actually have to have this agreement. And then he concludes there's no conspiracy or coordination. And so whenever you say, well, okay, you can say the legal elements of conspiracy here aren't met. But this word coordination, by its ordinary English definition, would seem to include the behavior that we saw the Trump campaign engage in with respect to hacked documents, right? They understand the hacking has occurred and that there's a plan to leak. They're reaching out to get additional information. They're coordinating and planning a campaign messaging strategy around these leaks, the Russians are deciding when to leak information based on what the campaign is doing. And so I do think that there are places in which Mueller made these choices, these definitional choices, and he breaks his own rules. And I actually think the reception to this document would have been different if Mueller said, you know, we did not, the evidence did not establish there was a criminal conspiracy. The evidence did establish that the campaign coordinated with the Russians choices like that, I don't know that they will hold up especially well. And, and I don't think that they hold up to a very, very close reading of the details. So going forward, I guess part of the problem is when we learn in grade school about the three branches of government and we talk about them being co-equal, that's a bit of a myth because the nature of the world is and the nature of the rules set down in the Constitution and in other laws are such that if the president chooses to exert all possible, both soft and hard power of that office, it can far outstrip and more rapidly, given the, the glacial pace of legislation and the courts, 
uh, very rapidly gain more power than those other branches. We've seen that in how presidents assert their ability to go to war and, and evading the requirements of Congress. You know, we, we have this understanding that they're all equal uh, and they serve different functions. But you imagine, you know, three cars on the highway, you know, two are ordinary cars and one's a Maserati. And so long as they're all obeying the speed limit and going under 65 miles an hour, if that's the speed limit on the highway, you think of them as being sort of similar. But now comes along a driver who realizes, wait a minute, this is a goddamn Maserati. I can gun it and I can go 100 miles an hour. And then the other two cars are not able to, maybe this is a terrible metaphor, <laughs> and I should abandon it. But is that really what's happening? In other words, isn't there a structural impossibility in causing equality among the branches given the nature of the power of a president, which vests in a single person who's elected by the entire country and has the armed forces and law enforcement and the bully pulpit all combined in one human being? How can any other branch possibly ever compete with that no matter what laws are passed? Yeah, so people have been warning about this imperial presidency really since the founding, but but sort of in those terms since at least you know, the 1960s and 1970s. And so this isn't a new argument. And the question is, how will Congress respond? And, and one way we could see a response is actually passing laws and exerting its own prerogatives. We haven't fully seen that, but I think that's sort of one hope. It's not just about Congress constraining the executive. It's actually about Congress doing its own job. If we go back to the investigating the president context or the special counsel investigation context, you know, Congress is is supposed to do its own investigations. It is itself an investigative body. And what we saw is members saying, well, let's just wait for the Mueller investigation. Let's wait to see what Mueller finds. And essentially, outsourcing its work to the executive branch. And that's something we saw with the Starr investigation of Clinton. We, we even sort of saw the origins of that um, in, in the Watergate investigation. And on one hand, you can understand why that's completely rational for Congress to do. The executive branch is better at conducting investigations. They can have subpoenas and wiretaps. They have professional staffs that do nothing but investigations all the time. And, well, we have this institution of the independent counsel or the special counsel, and, and that can somehow correct for the idea that you technically don't want the executive branch investigating itself. And so Congress has sort of acted as though they can outsource its own work, something like an impeachment investigation. And what we saw here is Mueller sort of dropping this thing on the table and saying, well, I did a lot of investigative work for you. By the way, the whole thing about leaving it within the executive branch may not have been a great idea, but I'm not going to do the last part of your job for you, even though you're begging me to. I'm not going to do that. You have to decide whether or not this is impeachable or not. I'm not going to decide if there was a crime. We could see Congress having a light bulb moment and realizing we can't continue to ask the executive branch to do our job for us, that this core job of accountability, of understanding whether the president has engaged in wrongdoing, kind of the molten core of congressional oversight. And we're going to start taking this seriously, and we're going to start investing staff time and resources and organizing ourselves to sort of be an effective counter. But we don't see them doing that at all. The issue is not 
is one car a Ferrari, you know, is one car a Ferrari and, and one car a, I don't know. <laughs> you say a Honda. I, I don't even know enough about cars <laughs> to give a bad, to give a slower car or something. It's one car is off to the races and the other car is just kind of drafting behind it. They're, they're not even actually trying. And no, the system as designed by the founders does not work in those conditions. It can look like it's working for a very long time, but ultimately, whenever you put real pressure and pressure in the form of a president like Donald Trump, we start to see the rot and the cracks in the foundation. And, and that's why I do think that this is, you know, I, I try not to use sort of the constitutional crisis. You know, I think that's all relatively overblown language, but that this is a pivotal moment for this country. And, and the decision really is, is the way Donald Trump uses the powers of the office acceptable? Is it sustainable for another four years? Or is it not? Because if we choose to continue to walk down this path, I think the ability to see our way back, as we have in the past when we've gone sort of a little bit too far in one direction, we're going to start losing the ability to kind of find our way back to the center. I want to talk a few minutes about the intelligence community and various things that are happening as we speak. But first, I want to remind folks that you, once upon a time, were a lawyer for the NSA, which stands for... No such agency, correct? Indeed. <laughs> what is the NSA and how much power and reach does the NSA have? So the NSA is the National Security Agency. And how much power and reach does it have? So the NSA has two missions. One is collecting signals intelligence aimed at foreign-facing signals intelligence. So they're sitting inside the United States, maybe, but everybody's looking outside the United States. So whenever we think about intelligence collection within the United States, we're talking about the FBI. But outside the United States, we're talking about places like NSA right. and CIA. And NSA's piece of that is the signals intelligence mission. And by signals, you mean communications, people are having phone calls, emails, et cetera. Exactly. Um, you know, data that's moving, electronic communications. The mission of the agency has evolved in, in sort of response to technology in, in some interesting ways. Um, NSA also has a really important defensive mission as well, that they secure sort of important parts of national security systems which in, within the United States. So it's an extraordinarily important intelligence agency. I, I know I'm biased here, but I'd say it's the most important intelligence agency. One sort of data point that people who share that view might point to is that it makes up the vast majority of the president's daily briefing. Um, most right. of that material uh, is sourced to signals intelligence or NSA materials. Because there's more volume. There's more volume of that. Right. Rather than right. things like human intelligence, people who work for the CIA would make a quality over quantity argument, but uh, we don't have to go down that particular path. Um, I will say that it's often tempting for big government agencies like that to feed the sense of mystique. It's certainly easier than having to answer questions, um, <laughs> to to sometimes explain. really hard ones. It's like, we can listen to all of you. Go <laughs> right. away. And that, um, and, right. And almost to sort of be, be glib about it and sort of, you know, don't, don't worry about what we're up to. It, it doesn't concern any of you. And, I, you know, I, I think that that's the wrong way to think about it. There are real benefits to leaning forward on transparency, not just about specific programs, although, of course, that's important as well, but also just the work that gets done and why and the types of people who work there. The sort of the headlines this week all involve 
Congressman Schiff's uh, letter that he's written to the acting director of national intelligence involving a sort of an allegation about whether or not the DNI has turned over a whistleblower complaint. Yeah, so that's something that I've been wanting to ask you about as we've been speaking. I've, I've followed your commentary on it. I think you have said we should be cautious as to how we interpret what's going on between the Intel chairman, Adam Schiff, and the DNI. But from where we sit, it's pretty alarming. It seems to be a very significant thing that's going on. What, what do you make of the back and forth between Adam Schiff and the director of national intelligence? I think it's becoming more alarming over time. Just to sort of recap what occurred, essentially the Whistleblowers Protection Act, which was passed in the 1980s, actually doesn't cover intelligence community employees. They have a separate a separate set of rules, and there's something called the Intelligence Community Whistleblowers Act. The intelligence community is always in this sort of weird position because it a lot of times can't tell the American public what it's doing for really legitimate reasons because we need that secrecy to protect sources and methods. And so we ask Congress to really stand in the shoes of Americans in sort of having that democratic accountability and oversight in conditions in which the American people just can't know exactly what's going on. These whistleblower rules and the way we decide what information the intelligence community has to tell Congress are really, really important ones. And so one portion of the whistleblower rule that applies to the intelligence community says if someone in the intelligence community makes a whistleblowing complaint and goes through the proper channels, right, doesn't board a flight to Vladivostok or whatever, you know, <laughs> Snowden did, but comes to the inspector general and makes a report in this way, there are procedures that will be followed and that that person will be protected. And so in this case, it appears um, that somebody followed all the rules. Reportedly, this is someone who was a member of the intelligence community who worked in the National Security Council at the White House. It's really common for people to, um, the intelligence community to loan staff to the White House and has now returned to their home agency. That's the reporting around it right now. So none of that is confirmed. And this person saw something that alarmed them. So they made a whistleblower complaint to the inspector general of the intelligence community. The inspector general, pursuant to the law, looked at that complaint, determined that it was credible. And so he passed it to the director of national intelligence. And the law says that when that happens, there's this determination of credibility, that it's urgent, that this referral has been made. The DNI shall most of us understand the word shall is you must do it, notify the relevant congressional committees within seven days. And so seven days has come and gone, and it turns out that the acting director of national intelligence didn't tell the committees. And so now Adam Schiff, who's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, wants to know what is going on. Right. But explain to folks how it is if the DNI didn't convey the whistleblower complaint to Adam Schiff, how does Adam Schiff know that it exists? Yeah, so it appears that the inspector general of the intelligence community gave this to his boss, who's the director of national intelligence, the acting director. He allowed that seven days to pass, and then the inspector general said, hey, it's been a week. You're supposed to convey this, and you haven't. And so the inspector general himself made a notification, not actually passing that complaint on, but just saying, hey, Congress, I've done my job. The clock is ticking. You need to be aware that I've made this submission. Right. So that itself is a pretty remarkable thing, is it not? Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's relatively astonishing that an inspector general would feel the need to be put in this position in the first place. And, and one thing we don't know is whether or not the committee has a sense of the content of the complaint. And, and I think this is really important. 
Adam Schiff, who's a really smart, pretty calm person, wrote this absolutely blistering public letter to the DNI in which he said, you know, this is outrageous. The law says you have to tell us, you have to give us this whistleblower complaint. You haven't done it. You've refused to do so. And we can only conclude that this involves serious wrongdoing by the president or or some senior administration official, that you are trying to cover up very, very serious abuse. A letter like that from Schiff and an angry letter, I think, is a reason to be concerned, right? This isn't somebody who gets alarmed easily. One of the things you have to ask as sort of an outside observer that doesn't have access to classified information is Schiff just saying, hey, there's a process foul here. If you don't clear up the information, I'm going to assume the worst here because my job as an overseer is not to let you get away with stuff. Or does Schiff have some additional information that he's not able to share because he's limited by the ability to to talk about classified information? And so what he's really doing is sort of setting an alarm here and a siren and kind of trying to tell everyone, hey, look at this. Something really, really bad is going on. Early on, it wasn't clear which of those worlds we were in. Hey, is there just a process issue or is there a real substantive concern here? As additional information has come out, there's more and more reason to believe, no, we might be in the world of serious substantive issues, mostly because the DNI has said that he was instructed by a higher authority not to comply and not to give that information. Do you think that was God? (laughs) Either God or uh, or potentially (laughs) the president. Um, I I did like that terminology, a higher authority. Yeah, what I mean, who are the other higher authorities? I, I. I think formally just the president, president, but again, sort of a weird way to describe it. And it's not as though this law has an exception for unless the president really doesn't want you or or God appears to you in a vision. So Adam Schiff has issued a subpoena. He has. He's essentially told the, the director of national intelligence, either you tell me what's going on and you give me the substance of this complaint, or I'm going to call you into Congress and I'm going to make you answer a series of questions. Already, the fact that we're here is really bad news. Congressional oversight of the intelligence community relies on mutual trust. It relies on both sides playing by the rules and agreeing to lean forward in sharing information. Because remember, this is all happening in secret. The American public doesn't know about this. Congress doesn't necessarily know about all this. We're asking the intelligence community to watch itself. We're using these inspector generals, these sort of these secondary proxy mechanisms. And this is really, really important stuff. And if the answer here is that the intelligence community now picks up a cue from the White House and says, well, you issue a subpoena, Congress, and we're going to litigate it, and it's going to take you years, and we're not going to comply until a judge forces us— the entire system of intelligence oversight will collapse in those conditions. It just isn't designed for that. It's designed for both sides to participate in good faith on behalf of the American public. That's why I think this is a story that's really important. You don't want to sort of create overblown expectations and, oh, God, you know, this means, I don't know, the president's reading everybody's emails or, or whatever well, sort of I crazy hope, thing. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> My emails aren't that interesting, but— Is um, the inspector general in this instance removable by the president? 
I don't know the f- the technical answer to that question. I would imagine yes, because the inspector general is a political appointee. Yeah. I, I don't think he's covered by the civil service rules, but I don't know what the formal answer is. Right. That's something you worry about now, too, where you have cogs in a process. It looks like people are abiding by some of the process. You remove one of them, and then you get a different result. I mean, I, I wonder how this would have played out had Dan Coates still been the DNI. Do you think it would have played out differently? I think it, it might have. It certainly might have played out differently if Sue Gordon was the acting DNI. Right. Remember, she was yep. forced out. You know, and, and I think it's worth sort of stepping back and, and thinking about the incentives here. The whistleblower in this case, if the reporting is accurate, member of the intelligence community, going to the National Security Council is a big deal. It's part of sort of upward career mobility, is now returning to their home agency. Every incentive there is to put your head down and do your job, and unless you see something absolutely egregious, to not engage in the whistleblowing process. Whistleblowing is not fun for the whistleblowers. For this person to be so alarmed that they say, I have an obligation here to engage in this process, to risk my career, you know, even though the law formally shouldn't allow that. You know, we know the realities of these situations. For the inspector general, who is independent from but also has to work with the director of national intelligence, technically this is his boss, for him to say, you aren't following the rules and I'm going to tell Congress you aren't following the rules. I'm not accepting your explanations for why you don't have to do this. I think that shows, one, the heartening news that there are still people who believe in abiding by the rules, committed to doing the right thing and, and making the system work, and also is a cause for alarm because it is an indication that, hey, there's something really bad going on here for, for these people to be really raising the alarm in this way. There's been reporting that the government, our government, U.S. government, has concluded that over the last couple of years, the nation of Israel has placed cell phone surveillance devices around the White House and other sensitive locations in Washington, Trump apparently said in response to that allegation, anything's possible, but I don't think the Israelis are spying on us. I really would find that hard to believe. You tweeted in response to that. This made me literally laugh out loud. What's so funny about that, Susan? I I literally laughed. Just it's a funny comment because... Yes, the Israelis do spy on us, and they spy on everybody. And that's not a moral judgment on the Israelis. That's just the factual record. And I'm not saying that based on classified information, but the public information available. The idea that the president of the United States, who, of course, is privy to lots and lots of classified information that might substantiate that view, the idea that he would basically say, you know, well, I don't think they do that. I, I mean, it's it's like having a toddler in the Oval Office. I mean, what, what do you think is going on here? Do you, do you think he really believes that, or is that just something he has to say publicly? Because recall, you know, the, the Israelis, you say they absolutely do it. And when asked the question, they deny it also. So is their denial laughable or is their denial sort of smart international relations and politics, whereas the president's remark along the same lines is laughable? All nations spy and all nations deny they spy. And that's sort of within the realm of of sort of acceptable rules and fair play. The United States does things and, and we deny it. For the president of the United States to say, I don't think the Israelis would do something like that, 
The reason why he's saying that is because he doesn't want to have to respond because it's inconvenient to him to have to acknowledge that reality and actually take some kind of recourse, right? It, it can be inconvenient when we find ourselves in the position of having to hold our friends accountable for something. Of course, what's going on is that the president doesn't want to have to do anything about it. And so whenever he doesn't want to have to do anything about something, he conveniently just refuses to believe it. There also is an indication that the way Trump approaches these issues, the lens through which he approaches this issue is almost bizarre. So we've seen reporting that he doesn't want the CIA to rely on human sourcing because he doesn't like the idea that this person would be betraying their own country to help the right. United States. Right. It's like how he feels about cooperating witnesses. Exactly. They're like, you know, well, you know, the guy's a rat, so just because he's ratting on the mob. And one, that really is sort of an insult to a lot of people who risk their lives in the intelligence community. And, and yes, sometimes the intelligence community pays informants or compromises informants or things like that. But an extraordinarily common amount of the time, it's just people who believe in in principles of freedom and democracy, the American vision, and, and actually want to help us and risk their lives to do it. And, and in a lot of cases, and more frequently than the public is aware, actually gives their lives on behalf of this cause. And so to have a president say that, it's really sort of this bizarre combination of naivete, right, as if everything is interpersonal relations rather than sort of nation states, but also, you know, that everything to him is so transactional, even sort of the concept of loyalty, that he wouldn't understand why people would look to the United States and want to help us and want to make the world safer for people and, and our ideas, essentially. And that itself, I, I think there's something pretty alarming about it. Part of the reason Trump was elected in the first place was the power of unthinkability, right? People thought there's no possible way this guy could get elected. And so they didn't vote or they voted for third-party candidates. I already see that unthinkability creeping in again. In analysis, the way people are responding to polls, there's no possible way he's going to win re-election. That's dangerous. An incumbent president always has a chance of winning re-election. It's probably more likely than not just on the pure statistics of it. And I think unless the American public confronts that and understands it's not unthinkable and this choice really is before us, we only get to make it once because the re-election is the most important choice. That's dangerous to sort of convince yourself Robert Mueller's not going to rescue us. The United States Congress isn't going to rescue us. This is on the American people to make this choice, and there's, there's only one way out. Susan Hennessy, thank you so much for being on the show and taking the time. The Report podcast continues. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In this week's Stay Tuned bonus, Susan and I talked about her current level of optimism, how the executive branch has changed over time, and her blog, Lawfare. To hear the bonus and the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, go to cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end the show this week by making a further remark on my extraordinary guest from last week, Brenda Berkman. You'll recall that she was the first woman firefighter 
in the New York City Fire Department. And she had to fight long and hard and struggle mightily to just get that equal treatment. And then even after she won her first lawsuit in 1982, she was abused, discriminated against, fired, had to reinstate a lawsuit to get to serve as a first responder with New York's Bravest. And the reason I mention it is, I don't know if folks appreciate it. I had never met her before, had never spoken to her before. It doesn't happen so often that you come into the presence of someone who you immediately admire and who you're honored to know. And it turns out I'm not the only one. I cannot tell you how many emails, tweets, other messages I've gotten with respect to the interview of Brenda Berkman and how much inspiration she has given lots and lots of people, not just women and not just people with daughters, but to men and women both as a model of bravery, courage, persistence. Here's a tweet from Erica Berry, 2001. Preet, I didn't think you'd have an episode that struck me as much as the Bill Browder episode, but this one had me in tears as I listened to Brenda recount her 9-11 experience. Thank you for telling your story, Brenda. Here's a tweet from listener Hope H, who writes, I have a new hero. Brenda Brookman has an amazing story, and Preet seemed to thoroughly enjoy interviewing her. She's inspirational, funny, no-nonsense, and raw. An absolutely fantastic episode. You have that exactly right. It was one of my most favorite interview experiences in two years. What I got, and you didn't, was I got to talk to her for a bunch before the interview, and then after the interview, talked her ear off, in fact. Hopefully we can have her back and tell more stories. Some of you made your views known on podcast reviews. Listener Al Ghali said, The episode with Brenda Berkman was riveting. Women and the men who support them should listen to what Captain Berkman and other women endured to become New York City firefighters. This is what true bravery is. Reviewer Chase Bear writes, I really didn't think another 9-11 story could make me cry, but it did. My favorite podcast. So all of this is just giving another thanks and shout out to the extraordinary Brenda Berkman. And thanks to all of you who tuned in and listened and were moved by her story as well. And although, from what I understand of Brenda, getting to know her a little bit, she would balk at this comment because she's a humble person, she does show that one person can make an extraordinary difference. See you guys next week. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Susan Hennessy. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. You can tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pirini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, David Kurlander, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. I'm looking for an experienced audio producer and editor to join the team at CAFE. That's the company that brings you Stay Tuned and the CAFE Insider podcast. If you're passionate about law and politics and thrive in a startup environment, this is the job for you. Email your resume and cover letter to submissions at cafe.com. That's submissions at cafe.com.